In this episode, Christopher Strom, U.S. Marine, NYPD Sergeant, and interrogator in Iraq. Welcome to another edition of Real American Heroes. I'm Oliver North. Our guest today, Chris Strom, served as U.S. Marine and then with the NYPD Intelligence Division. He retired as a sergeant in 2007 and was recruited immediately by the Joint Improvised Explosive Device Defeat Organization, JIRO. And if you can say that fast five times in a row, you're better than I am. It's a government agency that devised top secret strategies for combating IEDs, improvised explosive devices, in Iraq and Afghanistan. As the lead tactical debriefing officer, he participated in over 110 combat missions and 91 captures of high-value targets in southern Iraq and performed more than 200 battlefield interrogations. Chris, I, first of all, I'm amazed that you and I did not bump into each other a few times because I made a lot of trips out there, always at some point in those 66 embeds I did with Marines at some point. I saw a lot of what you guys had done to save the lives of Americans. And I want to just get a sense from you as to your experience in the NYPD Intelligence Division and why you retired to volunteer to serve in harm's way in a war zone. Well, thank you so much, first and foremost, Colonel, for having me on the show. It's a, it's a real honor, sir. I, I, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I got into the intelligence division after I got promoted to sergeant, and um, it, it was as a, as a result, direct result, really, of 9-11. And they had already had, the NYPD had already had an intelligence division, but, they, you know, because of the uh, aftermath, uh, they, they were short-staffed and they wanted more people. And at the time, I was doing street narcotics enforcement in uh, Brooklyn, and the commanding officer came in and he actually approached me and said, you know, I think you'd be a good fit. And it was more like he was telling me, not asking me to go to the intelligence division and um, turned out to be the best experience of my life in terms of the uh, NYPD uh, being around some amazing people and getting involved in, you know, really great uh, counterterrorism investigations throughout the city and beyond. G give me a sense for what your wife had to say about you choosing to go to war after you retired from the NYPD. Well, I guess I'm blessed. I have a great wife. Um, I think, you know, being around me as a police officer, you know, there was a lot of separation, as you might expect. You know, there's long hours. Sometimes you don't have days off. You work end on end, end, depending on what the case is. And so I think she had a general idea of what it would be like if I committed to this project to go to Iraq. Um, obviously, quite more dangerous um, in terms of real threats on a daily basis. But um, I think she was mentally prepared for that. And I think she's spiritual in the fact that, you know, it was all part of God's plan. One way or the other, things were going to work out for us and for our, our kids. So I think she was prepared for it. You ended up doing a 15-month tour over there. That's not easy, brother. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So tell us about how you transferred your police interrogation skills to help you in Iraq. Well, you know, to be honest with you, um, I learned from a lot of amazing people. Uh, so there was a true mentoring program that I was fortunate enough to take advantage of in the NYPD. I mean, nobody starts out just like anything in life being great at it. You know, some, some things take time, some things take practice. Yeah. Um, but, in t but in terms of transferring that, you know, physiology and human behavior and the human condition is universal. I mean, if people are happy, you can see it. If they're sad or they're scared, you can see that. And, you know, um, I had the advantage of doing this for quite quite some time. I mean, if you look at in terms of what the soldiers were up against, the younger soldiers, um, you know, an 18 or 19 year old kid 
and I know you know this, but maybe your audience doesn't know, you know, when you're 19 years old talking to a 45 year old Arab male, that's no good from the start. Right. So um, they're insulted by that. So and it's not the soldier's fault, obviously, but that's the situation he finds himself in. And so you have that. I, I didn't have that obstacle. I, there was a language barrier. I don't speak Arabic. Uh, I do speak some Arabic, but not enough to obviously carry on a conversation. So there's a little bit of a lag. But once you get a good interpreter, if they're in sync with you and you've worked with them for some period of time, um, you know, it's the, the delay in getting a response and reading the body language is so minuscule, it really has no effect at all. Well, you obviously had to trust your chirp, as, as we call them over there. Yeah, you know, do, you know, to be fair, um, I had some great Terps. Um, a couple of them in the beginning were not so good. Uh, so if I got a little bit intense verbally, you know, they were would look at me questioningly in front of the uh, bad guy. And uh, a couple of them I had to let go. But toward the end, I had two amazing interpreters. Uh, one was an Egyptian national. One was a Syrian national. Both of them were uh, at some point in time, I spent time in the U.S. military. So, you know, they were engaged. And so culturally, too, they clued me in on a lot of things that obviously I was behind on. So they they really made my job very easy. So basically all I had to do was do pretty much what I had been doing in New York for quite a t quite some time. Yeah. And uh, once we got on the roll, I mean, we just broke their spine right in half. Tell our listeners and viewers about the Phoenix team. The Phoenix team was something that Jayato had come up with um, prior to uh, the counterinsurgency and the surge. The main focus was uh, for, for combat uh, forces over there was to defeat the device. In other words, they wanted to find the IED before it went off. So they call it left the boom. But the problem with that is you could find bombs all day long, but that does nothing to, to, to diminish the actual uncertainty. It doesn't get rid of the players that are actually making the bombs or in placing or financing and things like that. So they developed this program through Jaeda where they were going to do now a, a counterinsurgency, so to speak. So they were going to approach this problem as if it was a criminal enterprise and pick off the cell members and basically dismantle the cells so that we didn't have to look so much for the bombs. Although, as the course of doing business, we did find a lot of bombs and recovered, you know, huge weapon caches, both uh, Iranian and uh, improvised explosive devices that were made organically in Iraq and also imported from Iran. IEDs are still causing massive casualties among our friends who are Iraqis and Afghanis, the Kurds, Syrian allies of ours, and of course civilians. It, it strikes me with all the science that we've got, all the, at the end of the day, what works best is treating it, just as you said, like police work. Exactly, sir. I mean, you know, human intelligence drives the engine. So, you know, you could have all the, the shiny objects in the world and, and, and God knows they spent billions of dollars on all kinds of things, radar jammers, uh, ground penetrating radar. I, all that stuff is great. Uh, but really, at the end of the day, it, it doesn't build an intel picture. You need real human. You need a live body in front of you to basically say, OK, where are your where are your friends? Where are the remaining cell members? Yep. And you need to close down the cell. And that has to happen contemporaneously to each operational mission that you conduct. So in other words, prior to me getting there, the Army's biggest challenge was getting positive identification. So if, if, that, could, if that hurdle could be met and, and the lieutenant or the ground uh, forces commander could be satisfied, they basically took that body and went back to the base and considered that a win. Unfortunately, they, if this guy was willing to give them or if they could prove that there were other outstanding cell members and they could locate them, and didn't go immediately after that. Well, now these people were at the four corners of the world. They were gone. Yep. And most of them went to Saudi City, as you know. 
Yeah. And I don't know what what what, ex what experience it was that you were there uh, in, in terms of the relative time frame. So I was there from 2008 to uh, 2009, May of 2009. And Souter City was a sanctuary city. We mm -hmm. were not allowed to go in there. We couldn't action a target. Yeah. We knew where these people were. And, it, you know, it's terribly frustrating when you know that you've got two out of the five and the other three are in Souter City. And all you have to do is just just go yep. get them. Go pick them up on the street. Yep. So give us a sense for what it was like working with some of the guys that you'd served with in the past as a Marine. I mean, not with them particularly, but with Marines. What was it like working with the U.S. military? I tell you, it was amazing. You know, um, first of all, just, just so your audience knows and you know, sir, I was 48 when I went over there. So the way I thought when I was 28 as opposed to now 48 is totally different. And the energy level and the commitment of these kids, and I call them kids only because of my age, they're amazing people, uh, guys and girls. You, you, get, you get attached to them, and they get attached to you. And now it became such a strong bond that they wouldn't, there was a unit there called 122 TST from 4th ID. They wouldn't go out and actually target without us. I mean, we were that effective in wrapping up, you know, the bad guys, doing the interrogation, processing the evidence, and doing follow-on targeting. I've gone to, to as many as four different targets in one night with this team. So the effectiveness of the team speaks for itself. And it's the genius of the team, not just me because of the interrogations, but everybody working together in the actual army unit that we supported. And just again, so your audience knows, you know, it's kind of like when you make a, a big gun collar in a precinct on the NYPD level, you know, these guys are coming back to the base. Yeah. And I'm talking about the, the army soldiers from one, two, two. And everybody knows that they just took down a tier one or a tier two target. And they're very popular now with the opposite sex. Sure. So I'm happy for them because, you know, they're getting they're getting the recognition they should be getting. Yeah. And they're good kids. And now instead of just being there for another deployment, could have been their second, third or fourth deployment. You know, they're actively involved in making a difference and helping their brothers and sisters die. Well, so it was an amazing experience. I, I just want our, our viewers and listeners to know uh, the questions that I'm asking are answered right here in this book from Brooklyn to Baghdad an NYPD intelligence cop fights terror in Iraq. It's a great read. You mentioned in this book problems with U.S. intelligence interference. Explain that to our viewers and listeners. Well, there was a couple of instances. Uh, I'll start with the, uh, the, the U.S. intelligence agencies. Uh, one of the things that, we were, that was happening as a course of doing these combat missions was we were discovering uh, huge amounts of U.S. currency and $10,000 lots of $100 bills in, in serial number order. Now, these people were part of a group, this one particular group was called MENSA, which stands for the Ministry of National Security and Affairs. And that organization was set up by the CIA, our own CIA. And basically, the money that we were giving them, they were then turning around and doing what they call EJK or extrajudicious killings, murders, rapes, torture of the Sunnis, because now there had been a power shift. And instead of it being a Sunni nation, which was uh, previously under Saddam, now it's a Shiite gov government organization, and they are taking full advantage of their of their Sunni uh, brothers and sisters, and they are displacing them, extorting them for money. So we took down about four or five members of the cell, and one of the people that I interrogated was a doctor, and he was willing, he, he wasn't willing, he did give me the location of a satellite office where they were running all this mayhem out of. So for 30 days, we planned this operation to go get the rest, rest of these people confiscate all their records so that we could present at a trial and these people could be put in jail for, you know, for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And after 
for whatever reason, after about 30 days, and I can't even tell you how many briefings I went to, sir. I know you've been in the, in the Marine Corps and made spend a career in, in, in terms of having people brief you, but we did all the briefings. We had the plans, the slideshow, and then the next thing you know, they canceled the mission wholesale. And why they canceled it, I don't know. My suspicion is, is that because whoever these people were, it was going to be very problematic for the people who were financing them. Yeah. That's not an uncommon problem, particularly the longer a war goes on. Yes, sir. Yes, Chris, sir. give us a sense for what made you want to sit down and write about this. Well, the experience really changed me. I mean, um, like I was telling you a little bit earlier, sir, the, the, the soldiers are amazing. And the soldiers have no say. They just go out and execute. And, you know, the, the beauty of that team and the experience and the shared, uh, you know, camaraderie is something that I want people to know about. And in spite of the politics in spite of the media and everybody's personal opinions and career aspirations, the, the soldiers perform magnificently and, and they do that every day. Uh, it's unfortunate though, that some people get in their way and they limit their success. And, you know, I'm a sore loser. Uh, I'm a Marine. I, I'm not, I'm not one that quits or gives up on anything. And if I've done everything I can do, I can look at myself in the mirror and say, okay, I, there's nothing else I can do. But when someone gets in my way, and stops me from getting people, whether it's in Satter City sure. or just a target or a building that they don't want me to action, it's terribly frustrating. And I have to believe that that weighs on the soldiers' minds as well. So well, that's, I, that's why I wrote the book. I want people to know that there, there's some amazing people and some amazing things that were being done behind the scenes Chris, with, these, with these beautiful people. You have, you have served in harm's way in, in, in the NYPD as a Marine, as an interrogator in Iraq. Things have changed in America. I mean, I look at what a law officer goes through today. I can imagine at some point the folks in the NYPD think it's probably easier to recruit a Marine than it is to recruit a law officer. Give me your thoughts on what's happening to law enforcement with defunding and destroying and attacks by vandals and arsonists and anarchists and Marxists. I've never seen anything like that in my lifetime in this country. Absolutely, sir. Yeah, you know, it, it basically, it's funny. It started about a year, more than a year ago, uh, back in 2019, in the summer, actually. And the NYPD, they were having this thing called the Buckets Challenge, where they were dumping water buckets on the NYPD. Now, I, I came on the NYPD in 1987. I can guarantee you if somebody poured a bucket of water on me, whether they thought it was funny or not, they were getting arrested and a good chance they're probably going to go to the hospital uh, in the process before they went to central booking. Fast forward now to what we have today. Let's defund the police. Um, all police are racist. I mean, the NYPD, bar none, is the most diverse police department in the country. So, in fact, there's 52% of the people in the NYPD are non-white. So the, the reality of somebody saying there's systemic racism in the NYPD or any other police department for that matter is just a joke because the chances of you working with somebody of a different race is, you know, one in two sure. or 50-50, more than 50-50. So that, that a police officer would put on a uniform and say, today, I'm going to pick one group versus another, and then I'm going to finish my day picking one group versus another is an abject lie. The police are out there doing the best job they can under the most difficult circumstances, and you have these people that want to get reelected and say that police are bad. And then people that, you know, that are really dependent upon the police are the ones that are suffering. Well, I really appreciate, first of all, you joining us today, and second of all, for this book, Brooklyn to Baghdad. So tell our viewers and listeners how to get their copy like I've got mine. 
<laughs> it's on uh, Amazon.com, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, Walmart, Target. Um, if people Google Brooklyn to Baghdad or my name, Christopher Strom, all kinds of information pops up in regards to the book. Uh, if people direct message me, I'm, I'm more than willing to talk to new people and explain to them about the book and how they can go about getting a signed copy. God bless you, man. I tell people that a hero is a person who puts themselves at risk for the benefit of others. And you've been doing that for most of your life. I thank you for that. And I want to thank our folks viewing and listening at home. If this show has been helpful to you to understand, to inform, to encourage, take time now to subscribe and let me know how these unprecedented events have affected you and yours. By doing so, you too can become part of an historical record of how America persevered thanks to people like Chris and once again prospered. Until next time, remember that Semper Fidelis is more than just a slogan for U.S. Marines like Chris and me. Always faithful is a way of life.